This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Roman Eisenstein was born in Poland. He survived the Nazi occupation of Warsaw in hiding with his father. He and his parents moved to Paris from Warsaw in 1946, where he now lives. However, sometime between the two stays in Paris, Roman made his way to South Africa as a young man, where he joined the African Resistance Movement, a mainly white underground resistance movement who carried out various acts of sabotage against the apartheid state during the mid-1960s. Mr. Eisenstein joins me now from Paris. Welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for that, Clarice. Uh, just uh, a little correction. First, the African resistance movement was not mainly white, but mainly black, okay. actually African. That's point number one. And the second point was, uh, it was not just sabotage. The um, very important aspect, which has never been discussed very much, is the rescue of... Um, exiled African tribal leaders in remote areas and the transfer to to the protectorate, basically. In those days, the Basutiland, which is Botswana, now there's Lesotho, to some extent, Swaziland. So these are the points also to make, I think. I think the point you raise is very important because very few South Africans, I think, know much about the African resistance movement. And I wonder why. Well, uh, very uh, well, very briefly, because the African resistance movement was—I was not the policy maker in it—and there were people like Randall Vine and others uh, who were dealing with that. And uh, that comes back to some extent to the Liberal Party. A lot of people came from there, and the Liberal Party of South Africa, which uh, shamefully dissolved itself, unfortunately, uh, was quite a mixture because although it was called liberal in many ways the whole, whole the whole wing of it was liberal in the American sense in the US sense which is social democratic basically would distinguish itself from the uh, South African Communist Party quite sharply but other, so uh, and it never became a mass movement the ANC was a very old and mass movement and the African movement uh, African resistance movement never considered itself as a rival to uh, to the ANC, more uh, more as a more independent organization. Now its birth goes very back a long way. It was essentially founded by Monty and Myrtle Berman, both Jewish, both former members of the Southern Communist Party, who were expelled from the Communist Party in, uh, after they objected to the uh, Russian crushing of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, October, November 56. And the Southern Communist Party was a very rigid uh, and always remained a very rigid uh, pro-Soviet organization, maybe for underground reasons. Uh, that may be the reason for it. Uh, so I can't blame them necessarily. But they wanted total discipline and they did not get it. Now, during the state of emergency, following Sharpville in 1960, both the Burmans and the Slovaks and all these people were locked up. And that is when Monty, who'd been in the, uh, in the costume guard, I think, during the war, in the, uh, he was in Safkan and the British Army during the war, and so he had quite a lot of experience, decided that the way forward was to create some kind of sabotage organization to try 
to at least raise a protest against what was going on. At that stage, the ANC was crushed, the PNC was crushed, nothing was going on. So when Monty and Mottel came out, uh, and I think to some extent uh, it was with knowledge of people like Slovos, who had, uh, who had their old friends from university and school days anyway, who uh, they remained in the Communist Party. Anyway, Monty started the organization basically with very few people, and the idea was to create some kind of media, if you like, public protest, because it was totally dead, like Sataka became sort of uh, a bit like North Korea is now. Mm. And that started in a very idiotic way. I mean, they, uh, they went after Palin and did not have any dynamite, and they just threw off a few Palins, and occasionally it, it attracted uh, some uh, paragraphs in the press, and that's how it started. And the other... Um, uh, the other main activity which Monty started uh, uh, with uh, with the help of various people, including myself, and that was very, very important, which was never high. And that organization was called, incidentally, the National Committee for Liberation, and, uh, 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 National Liberation Committee, NLC. And that... Um, Started that uh, we did uh, help what was called banished people under the apartheid system. The government was able to take out the rebel chiefs in little tribes or bigger tribes and take them from their own community and their tribal area and put them in remote areas in a non in a far from anywhere actually but on top of it which were totally totally uh, different tribal area and these people very often did not speak very good English or anything except their own language so they were quite isolated generally anywhere it was a very cruel punishment uh, just to give you an example uh, I had to take uh, someone called uh, the problem still exists somebody, someone called Jeremiah Mabi uh, who was a chief of a, of a little tribe called Mabis Kral. It's near Rustenburg. And for various reasons, I had to take him to, uh, to the Sutu, and uh, it didn't work out. So I took him to uh, Botswana, Bet- which was now Botswana, of course, uh, because that was in the whole rush of, uh, of uh, decisions had to be made quickly. And that was quite a drive, and uh, he was exiled um, in a place 110 miles, so it's probably 150 kilometers, 160 kilometers, in fact, from Fixburg, which is a little town in the Transvaal, so it's quite far. And uh, he and some others were living in little huts in nowhere, and once a month they brought them some little bit of food, and that was it. They were just rotting there and dying there. And um, I was with uh, with one of his tribesmen called Paul and uh, Roda, a friend of mine, and we did that. And eventually, I took him to uh, to Betwanaland and to give uh, give an idea of the difficulties in those days. Uh, when I tried to settle him because we had no uh, no no connection, because uh, as I said, we were supposed to go to the city to uh, to, um, to to the city in those days. At Basutulant in those days, um, and went to see a few tribal chiefs who basically 
So this, that, and the other, very sympathetic, but no, uh, not, nothing doing. And in despair, I had to turn to the Anglican Church. And uh, the clergyman there was extremely good. He, A, gave me a letter to the, uh, to the chief of police, British chief of police in Francistown. I think the story can be told now. I mean, they're, they're probably all retired anywhere. Else, so. And the chief of police in Francistown, who was a some official in the church as well, welcomed him and he said, I'm therefore giving you a refugee status straight away. And he went even further than that. He told, uh, told me how to get out from Botswana into South Africa without being noted by the South African police. Which, you know, through various roads, and that was very good too. So, so, so it was quite adventurous. And as I left, and I will remember that uh, uh, Jeremiah said to me, "Pula," which is in in his language means rain, and in those for them it's a great praise. So that's why I remember it very well. Others I don't remember so well, but this was very adventurous. And uh, so quite a number of those uh, people were rescued, and that is a very very important element of what the African resistance movement did, and nobody else did that. So, uh, in fact, it should be at the forefront. In terms of sabotage, if you go to, uh, I've never been there, but I'm told that if you go to the Rivonia Museum, um, they have a photo of a huge, a huge structure uh, Iron structure, which was allegedly put down by the ANC, but this is just not true. I was there, and Bernice uh, Lassinger in those days, Bernice Kaplan, and uh, I think Hugh Lewin, and uh, um, Dennis Higgs, and Flip Green, we were the team that did it. So, anyway, good luck. But So, the African resistance did quite a lot of uh, those things, and technically, uh, we also, I'm afraid, uh, had to get hold of some dynamite, which we that Dennis Higgs was, you probably found him on Wikipedia, I think he died very recently. He was a great mathematician, I mean, uh, and he, he had a good name in mathematics at Vips. He was a Cambridge Wrangler, which means a guy who gets top marks in Cambridge for maths. He taught at Vips and then taught in Canada, a very specialized type of maths, because uh, by pure chance a friend of my wife also took math in in France, and she also was in his his type of mathematics. So they knew of one another, uh, and between him and Flip Green, they they developed technical skills better than any that you could get anywhere in the world. Uh, in fact, better than uh, what the controversies were got in Cuba and the Soviet Union, believe it or not, because these were top guys. So, in terms of skills, the African resistance was strong. In terms of human help, which I think possibly was its most important contribution, which is never mentioned, was help the banished people and others. I mean, you know, if people needed to go across borders, we could do that. Uh, if I just can give you an anecdote, uh, Monty actually discovered it. You know, South Africa in those days had strategic routes, roads, uh, uh, which developed during the war, I suspect, just in case uh, they had to fight the Nazi or whatever. And 
these were uh, strictly uh, the official secret. However, Monty discovered official secret or not, if you went to the Johannesburg public library in the living room, right at the back, there were maps, and there were all these secret, a little bit secret uh, strategic maps, they were all there, so, so we knew how to get in and out. So if people needed to be out, we could do that. Right. So there was that element. What uh, African regime lacked was a mass following, which never, it never suited, because it was not antagonistic to any other organization. So it did not seek, seek it. It was not linked to the ANC, because the ANC in those days was essentially, although it's come out since, I think, controlled by the South Communist Party, uh, which... Uh, we, for whatever reasons, we did not get, get along with, and I don't think they would have welcomed us anyway. As I say, I was not in the policy-making body, so I don't know all the details. And, and so it, no, we never developed a mass movement, and nobody did we ever try to, so that's how it was. So it's, Roman. Yeah, so that, in short and briefly, uh, it's history. Roman, um, and, Roman, what you're describing to me, in a way... Sounds like yeah. a South African version of the Scarlet Pimpernel. And, um, you talk of the what? Of the Scarlet Pimpernel. Uh, yes and no, because as I say, we, we were, it was more than that. It was, it was a political movement. Uh, it never, I don't think it developed a proper political program. I would say its political program would have been some kind of social democratic views, and uh, it was. And uh, in the darkest days of South Africa, don't forget, and nobody did very much. Uh, the ANC was far exiled, and there were just very few people. Until, until 1976, there were uh, the only politics, South African politics, was exiled politics. So essentially. And this was the only sort of radical opposition noise that you could hear in South Africa. So it was not just Scarlet Pimpernel. It was, it was much more than that. Scarlet Pimpernel was, uh, no, it was not that. It, it went beyond that. Far, far beyond that. I, I think what I'm trying to say is that it sounds like there was a huge amount of adventure, about planning and all the rest. Oh, well, uh, look, uh, adventures and planning that exists in any kind of resistance movement anywhere in the world. I mean, whether it is in Poland, which was a very strong resistance country, and then I can tell you, tell you about that, all the little bits that existed in France, or a lot of it in Greece, so Yugoslavia, all this required sacrifices, planning, uh, political discussions, all kinds of groupings moving this and that way. I mean, if you look at France, uh, the resistance was by no means unified, mm. and uh, and uh, the early part of the French resistance, believe it or not, did not come from the left or from the Social Democrat, but the very, uh, the very early resistance in France came very often from the extreme right nationalist French groups, mm. uh, royalists and people like that. So... Uh, at the very beginning, you know, when Vichy signed, signed his capitulation to the Germans, some some people who would be proper and wanted him to uh, to come to power got so indignant that they were entered immediately in the resistance. Uh, you know, and Daniel Daniel Cordier has written quite a bit about that because at the age of twenty or so 
Haiti and some other just uh, went on a ship and arrived in, in England to join the Moorish forces, which were hardly existent. So you, you do have, and these people came from the extreme right. So you do have mm-hmm. a mixture at the beginning of resistance of various groups. But that is not just scarlet paper now. I mean, the adventure is part of it because you can't do otherwise. In my particular case, I'd rather not be, uh, <laughs> not be particularly adventurous. I was quite happy to be a journalist, and that is what I did. I mean, even though I did economics and, and, and law of this initially and then uh, in England, but, but basically, you know, we did not look for adventures. Adventures came to us. Roman, you ended up in jail. You spent time in jail for, yes. your, for your efforts. Well, uh, I have, um, I have to tell you, uh, I d- do not always agree with my other friends who are in jail because I, I thought it was not too bad in the sense, well, it was bad in the sense that the government initially was very vindictive against us in the sense that we could, uh, we could only have um, a visit, a, once, a visit every six months, and then at the international pressure, this changed. And just to show that we're gangsters and not political prisoners, they transferred us for nine months, if I remember correctly, to Pretoria Central with all the uh, high security gangsters. And, and my, and, and, uh, these high security gangsters, they never, they respected us a lot, A, because there are quite a number of lawyers among us and we could write their petitions because they're always writing petitions and they want to make appeals and nonsense appeals and nothing. But anyway, they wanted that, so that was one thing. And they never seen such a big gang, so they were very respectful of us. And my uh, most vivid memory of that was the following. We were in the workshops, and there was in the, in the yard a sort of trestle table with an with a iron door, a wire door across as a kind of a table on top of it. And there was a chap who was a sort of long timer and a very famous gangster called James. And I can't remember anything else about him, but one death of wood got murdered. And these uh, warders were looking at us with extreme hostility and say, you will hang for this and whatever they were. And suddenly, out of the blue, this guy James goes on top of this table, table dress and says, yes, I've always said, the nab, that's the best thing to go to somebody. <laughs> that was the end of that. So, you know, that's my most, most vivid memory of it. So, yes, so that was it. Uh, in prison, we could study, actually. We could do studies with the University of South Africa by correspondence. And um, some of us uh, were doing uh, learning criminology, and our arguments with the prison authorities was, and in civilized countries, these people, uh, prisoners are not treated the way we are being treated. Mm-hmm. The, the uh, understanding being that uh, South Africa was not a civilized country. So it was, but it was not uh, that bad. Uh, I met some very good friends. I mean, Bram Fisher, who was the chairman of the Communist Party, uh, was in, and he was a very, very good and very, very nice man. Um, and I shared a cell with Ivan Schemberger at one time, and he 
had been uh, the organization secretary of the Communist Party again. Uh, well, Sembeke and Brahm were both Afrikaners, and one day the door opened, and Schnepper, who was the chief warder, called Schnepper because his brother was visiting. And uh, then, uh, then Schnepper came back from the visit of Smart and said, Oh, yes, so my brother. Suddenly, the door immediately opened, and Schnepper opened the door and started screaming in Afrikaans at Schnepper, screaming his head off, and then banged the door. And I said, to show what was it about? So he says, well, my brother is a policeman. <laughs> and he came in uniform from Bloomfontein, where it was. And Schnepper could not contain himself because the brother was one of theirs kind of thing. And then there was the number three of the South Korean Communist Party <laughs> having oh, yeah. been in prison. So that was, uh, so that is Roman, what it was. Roman, you, you know, you highlight the ironies, the so many ironies that made up the apartheid system. Oh, Unfortunately, South Africa was full of ironies. I mean, the apartheid system was, was, well, it was full of irony and it was unworkable, by the way. I mean, well, the, if you want to read the, the email, the sort of economic side, why it was unworkable, all one needs to do was to look say, from the old copies of the Financial Mail, which mm-hmm. was uh, 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 which was a business a business weekly magazine. And George Palmer, who recently died, I mean, I was in touch with him, he was in America recently, and George edited it basically from a straightforward business point of view, and over the years you see that the system was unworkable. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating, and I think it's important that we collect these stories that I think few of us know, know about. Yes, well, that's good, and... Uh, uh, and we'll speak again, I hope. Thank you. Be well, Thank you. And thank you very much for speaking to me as well.